it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Love this podcast because it crushes your dreams of getting rich quick. They actually got me into reading stats for anything. You're tuned in to the Investing for Beginners podcast. Led by Andrew Sather and Dave Ahern. Step-by-step premium investing guidance for beginners. Your path to financial freedom starts now. Starts now. All right, folks, welcome to Investing for Beginners podcast. Tonight we have episode 271, and we have a special guest. We have Andy Schuler here with us tonight. He's filling in for Andrew. Andrew is traveling across the country. He's around Dallas, Texas right now. He had a bachelor party this past weekend, and he had a lot of fun, and he's driving back with his brother-in-law across country helping him move. So with that, Andy agreed to fill in for Andrew. So this is my second recording today without Andrew. So it's a little weird. We miss him and he will be back next week, but we just needed to fill in and Andy was kind enough to do it today. So Andy, thank you for coming back on the show today and joining us. We appreciate that. And this is going to be a lot of fun. We're going to talk about some finance and some personal finance and some investing stuff. So I guess first off, Let's talk about HSA. This is a, an account that I think is an asset that's underutilized. I think you would agree. And maybe you could tell everybody, what is an HSA? Like, I don't, what is this voodoo Dave's talking about? Yeah, absolutely. You know, first off, thanks for having me. And thanks to Andrew for taking a long road trip so I could fill in. <laughs> Always good to get to get back with you guys. So yeah, the HSA, you know, it, it's an acronym for health savings account. It's a high deductible health plan. Uh, compared to a low deductible health plan that that your employer might provide. You might just hear high deductible and think, what the heck can be a benefit of this? (laughs) Um, To me and to many, the beauty of the HSA is it allows you to stash away pre-tax money into a savings account that can then be used without paying taxes on the way out for a qualified medical expense. So real life example, if you were to put away hundred dollars per paycheck and you get halfway through the year, that's a hundred dollars tax free going in instead of, you know, $75 or whatever your tax rate is. If you were saving it after your check, you have a, a hiccup, have to go to the ER, kids are sick, whatever it might be. You can now use those funds without paying any tax on them whatsoever. You know, I think it's an absolutely fast, fantastic plan. And there's a lot of benefits outside of that as well. So this is something that I have actually taken advantage of since my heart attack. 
I have been using this to pay my hospital bills because I have a high deductible insurance plan. And so this is something that has worked out great for me because it helps me save money on my taxes, like you said. And it also gives me an easy way to keep track of the bills that I'm paying because I have one place that the money is going into and one place that it's going out of. And I have a debit card that has a Visa logo on it. So it's super easy to use. If I had to go buy prescriptions, I could use it for that. So it's super convenient in that regard. Are there limits? Are there qualifications to opening an HSA? Like, can anybody do it or does it have to be with a high deductible? type of insurance plan? It does have to be with a high deductible insurance plan. There are annual contribution limits. To my memory in 2023, I think it's $7,300 for a married couple and then $3,650 for an individual. I think that's up $100 from last year, You know, similar to what you'll see with some of your other retirement accounts, both the IRAs and 401ks both will gradually go up from year over year. HSA does the same. All right. So let's say that you use the HSA, like your example, let's say that you're halfway through the year and you use up the money in there to pay for maybe some unexpected medical expense that came up. You can contribute up to $3,600 for the year. Let's say at the end of the year, you have $3,600. The next year rolls around. Can you start that clock over again? Or is it maxed out at $3,600 is all I can ever put in this account? Uh, Yeah, great question. So it's an annual clock, so it will reset. Now, the key differentiator between an HSA and an FSA, a flexible spending account, is a flexible spending account has to be used in that calendar year, or those expenses have to occur in in that calendar year. You might have a few months, say, to the end of March the following year to actually submit your reimbursement of an FSA. But if you do not spend those dollars, they go away forever. You can't get them back. In HSA, that money will roll over from year to year. And even if you were to change an employer, that HSA money will still ride out in that account until you either withdraw it or you know spend it for a pre-qualified medical expense or some other. So can you, I guess the next question is, let's say the money is just sitting there. So if you put $3,600 in there, what would be the advantage other than the tax benefit? Is there, does it make money? Is it like a savings account or is it more like an investment account where you can possibly invest the money? This is where we start to get into, I think, the beauty of the HSA. So, you know, you talk about the tax. So there's always, you know, the front end, am I going to save enough on my tax dollars to offset however much higher my deductible is? You know, every kind of thinking worst case or if you have kids and you might hit your deductible really early on. So that's kind of the first step of it. The second piece is what do you actually do with those funds when they're in there? You can let them sit in cash if you anticipate kind of just burning and churning that money that comes in and goes out. Or if you think it'll stay in there for an extended period of time, you can invest that money. In my past, we've had an HSA with Fidelity and an HSA with Anthem. Fidelity lets you buy individual stocks. I mean, I owned Apple in my HSA. I've owned literally anything. I mean, any ETF you want to buy, you can buy You can buy bonds. Anything that you can buy in a brokerage on Fidelity, I was able to buy in, in that HSA. Anthem is a bit more scripted, almost like a 401k where it's kind of pared down to to specific mutual funds. They do have some total market. There's some some target date funds. Not the most ideal, but certainly will will get you there better than just sitting in cash and mm-hmm. not incurring any sort of interest. So, you know, that's really where you see the huge benefit of the HSA is being able to invest those dollars that you save. 
That's awesome. So that you're aware of, are there any fees involved in any of this? Like to either keep the money in the account and not use it or to invest in Apple, for example? The fees that that you'll incur are just fees that you would have for a normal expense ratio in a specific, you know, mutual fund or an ETF, but you're not going to incur any additional expenses above and beyond just in your HSA. Okay. All right. I guess this may be a dumb question, but if you put $3,600 in an HSA and you invest all of it, what happens if you need to pay a bill? Then do you have to liquidate those stocks to pay those bills or does it automatically liquidate the stock if you go to buy a prescription at CVS, for example? You do have to liquidate those stocks to be able to actually have that cash balance. You know, this kind of gets into a little bit of the strategy of it too. The way that we manage our HSA in our household is we keep one year's deductible, max out-of-pocket deductible in cash at all times. Mm-hmm. And everything else is invested. So that way we know no matter what, those investments are protected because we kind of have a year of cash just to handle those what ifs. Mm-hmm. If we were ever to get hit with an expense that we wouldn't be able to to cover with our normal cash flow to keep us from having to dip into an emergency fund. In essence, it's really kind of a health emergency fund in that sense. Let's just say, for example, if you have a $7,000 deductible like I do, <laughs> then putting in $7,000 in the HSA in cash and then maybe a few years later, investing that money, extra money that you put in there would be kind of the optimal strategy in essence. Yep. I would agree. And I think, you know, a lot of it comes down to what's your personal risk tolerance. Mm -hmm. How do your finances look? I mean, if you have a large, maybe excessive emergency fund that you feel like you can cover those expenses out of pocket, maybe just go ahead and start investing everything in your HSA from the get go. Mm -hmm. That's where it gets back to a little bit of that, that personal touch with how you want to manage your finances. When it comes to financial advice, you got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to Nerd Wallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before Nerd Wallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Budgeting was always a challenge for me. I struggled to find the best way to keep track of all of my money. Not to mention all the time tracking down receipts, cataloging expenses, and trying to figure out what went wrong with my air quote system until Monarch Money. Monarch Money allowed me to easily see what is going on with my finances, helping me get a better handle on my spending, budgets, and more. It's my go-to app every day, more so than my bank, because I can quickly see where I am with my budgets and spending, allowing me to invest more and spend time on the things that I want to do. It's my GPS for money. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all of your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, set goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com beginners. Unlike other personal finance apps, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch has built-in features to collaborate with your partner, family, or financial advisor. 
Invite them to your account at no extra cost, and they'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. Monarch is the most customizable budgeting app. Change the layout of your dashboard, toggle between light and dark mode, create custom budgets and notifications, set up automatic rules for transactions and notifications, and more. In fact, Monarch Money is one of the first to bring you direct Apple Card, Apple Cash, and savings syncing with the latest iOS 17.4 update. Now you can sync your wallet directly for seamless budgeting. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash beginners. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash beginners for your extended 30-day free trial. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So as somebody, I guess, depending on, would, would this be a benefit of somebody, let's take two individuals, let's say somebody is 25 and the other person's 47, for example, different age groups are going to have different, likely different medical needs. They're also may have different health plans too. And so would it benefit somebody that's maybe a little on the older side or somebody that's on the younger side, or does it really, it's just more about this is my benefit plan for my health insurance. And this is the option that I have and I can take advantage of it now versus when I'm older. Does that make sense? It does. I think there's different ways to think about it. So the younger you are, you're obviously going to have a longer investing time horizon. So you will receive a massive benefit in that way to be able to invest, you know, 25 versus 45. I'll take the extra years of investing time horizon at all times. On the other hand, if you're 25 and you have two kids that you might, if you know you're going to hit your deductible, you know, there's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's definitely going to get hit. Mm-hmm. At that point, you have to do some of the math of, am I going to save in my HSA on the taxes, what the difference is on my deductible. So it's just a little bit of that, that give and take. Mm-hmm. You know, someone when they're 45, you know, it's going to be the exact opposite. They're going to have a lower time horizon or a lesser mm-hmm. time horizon. And maybe their kids are older, less health expenses. Right. But maybe they're starting to have some of their own health expenses. So it, it really just, it truly is a, a case-by-case situation. I think you can make a great case for and against it, no matter what, just depends on your specific scenario. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So how would, I guess, thinking about this in conjunction with other retirement accounts, is there, do you have a preference over this versus an IRA or a Roth or the 401k, or is this something that maybe like in the evolution of what you should start investing in, would this be first or fourth or second, or like, how would you kind of think about that? And I guess the hierarchy of, you know, I start here and then use these next kind of idea? Yeah, I think a lot of times when we think of investing priority, you'll hear people talk about 401k, especially the 401k match and trying to match out your employer's contributions. So I'm 100% on board with. And then you'll hear the Roth IRA or sometimes a traditional IRA and then HSA is third. I'm a massive advocate for the HSA. And I think the HSA can provide a lot of benefits that the Roth IRA can't. So I put them, truthfully, neck and neck. I mean, I think they're both tied for second. Mm -hmm. Some advantages that your HSA provides over a Roth IRA is a lot of times you're going to have an employer contribution. If you have a high deductible plan between the few employers that I've talked to friends that they're working at, I've seen anywhere from $400 to $800 per person to double that if you're married. Yeah. Uh, for an employer contribution. Yeah. So if you double it, you know, you're at 800 to $1,600. Another massive benefit is you can take these funds out at age 65 for no reason at all. 
you will pay normal taxes on it. But at that point, it just becomes your typical traditional IRA. You're basically just deferring those taxes. Now, my all-time number one favorite part of the HSA is if you incur an expense today, so I'll give a real life example. This year, we had a $2,000 expense for one of our children. If you pay for that out of pocket and you save your receipt and have some sort of detail, we just kind of mark it on a Google sheet explaining when it was for, date we paid, and just you know a receipt kind of showing the actual charge. You can pull that $2,100 out tomorrow, in five years, 10 years, at any point, <laughs> and never pay taxes. Wow. So the beauty of that is $2,100 for me now will grow tax-free until you know I absolutely need it or want to take it out. And at that point, you can take it out completely tax-free. It truly is an amazing tool to be able to hold on to those expenses. If you can really front some of them and pay for them out of pocket, it, you'll reap massive rewards with your HSA. Oh, that's awesome. I guess that's not a benefit that I, I guess I had heard of, but I wasn't super familiar with that, with that benefit. But yeah, I could see how that would be awesome. So if you max out your 401k, can you also contribute to an HSA or can you contribute to a Roth? Like, are they kind of all separate entities? So if you max this one out, you can still max this one out and you can still max this one out kind of idea. Yep. You absolutely can. They have a, there's no relation to the other. Your annual HSA max does not tie in in any way to one of your retirement accounts. You know, I actually kind of, kind of laugh because I think just the naming of it, you don't even think of it as a retirement account. No. A lot of times it'll <laughs> kind of get left behind. Right. Truthfully, when I was working in the bank world, we offered an HSA for a time and it wasn't something that came up much. But when we did, most people didn't even know that A, they could invest in it, B, that it was even a tax vehicle that they could use to help them reduce their tax liability. Most of them just thought it was something that they could put money in to use to pay for medical bills, and that's all they really knew. And so when we would educate them, you know, their you know, minds were blown like, why didn't anybody talk about this before? Like, it's just not something that gets, it's not sexy and it doesn't get a lot of radio play, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's so true. It's, you know, I'm an absolute personal finance podcast junkie. Backdoor Ross and Mega Backdoor Ross are talked about all the time. And to your point, that's the flashy, sexy mm-hmm. way around it or a high income earner that you cannot contribute to a Roth IRA. But this seems to get seemingly completely left out. And, yeah. you know, $7,300. And if, you have an employer giving you 500 a 1000 bucks, maybe as a family. I mean, that's a slam dunk. I mean, yeah. I do it all day, every day. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I know that I'm going to, you know, keep mine open and keep, you know, once I paid off my medical bills, I'm just going to use it as an additional retirement account because it's like you said, it's a slam dunk and it's a no brainer. It's easy. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And, you know, kind of just a takeaway I would have for people listening is just really dive in and understand exactly what your employers are currently offering you. You know, I think I think there's a lot of tools out there that we might not know about. I know one I can speak specifically, and you know, I tell myself, shame on me. I wish I'd found it earlier. My employer offers something that's called a dependent care FSA. So dependent care flexible spending account. That is a flexible spending account. So it, you know, resets back to zero at the end of the year, but you can save up to five thousand dollars annually if you're married or twenty five hundred dollars as an individual to offset dependent care expenses. So that could be nursing home expenses. That can be, in my case, daycare expenses. And while $5,000 might not be a massive amount to save when you're thinking about how outrageous daycare is, I'll take $5,000 tax-free over $5,000 not tax-free. 
you know, all the time. I just really, you know, would recommend, you know, really dive in and fully understand all your benefits that that your employers are offering. Because I think the HSA and the DC FSA are two that absolutely get missed, even by myself. Yep. What's the best way to get started in the market? Download Andrew's ebook for free at stockmarketpdf.com. Yep, totally agree. You know, I remember when I first started working for Wells and they handed me this huge packet of like all the benefits and everything. It was a little overwhelming. And, you know, I know reading through that stuff, it took me a little while. And, you know, like you said, there was, I'm sure I know I missed things that were in there. And, you know, there are a lot of benefits that our employers will offer us that a lot of us won't take advantage of just because we aren't familiar with and don't know. So hopefully this conversation about HSAs and FSAs can help people learn more about these tools that can help them. I guess the next thing I guess I'd like to talk about is this is going to be a complete right turn segue here. But we were talking a few weeks ago about kind of like how you've kind of changed your investment philosophy as your life has changed and as the pandemic hit. And they kind of coincided and it wasn't something we had talked about a lot. And so I thought it was kind of interesting. And maybe you could kind of tell your story about how, what you're doing now and kind of how it's changed and why it changed. Yeah. You know, my general investing philosophy has, has certainly changed over the years. And it's, you know, for a multitude of reasons. You know, I think during the pandemic, it's and even before I'll say up until and, and through the pandemic, you know, I was, I was heavy in stocks, individual stocks. I loved falling along. I love picking my own individual stocks. You got a thrill from listening to the earnings calls and seeing how reports would come out. And it's not that I don't, I still do, but it's, you know, a lot of it's time management. Uh, you know, if, if you have a portfolio of 15 to 20 stocks, that's a, that can be a heavy lift um, just in terms of, of making sure your investment thesis stay true to what you thought when you invested, you know, one, two, five, ten 10 years ago, however long that is. So, you know, up until probably 2021, I was, I'll say 100% stocks outside of, you know, 401k where your your hand was a bit forced into to mutual funds or ETFs that, that were your sponsor or that your employer sponsored. At that point, you know, things change as you start to, you know, move to a new city, new job, you know, add children into the family. It's, you just start to realize, hey, time's a little, it's not as abundant as it was. You know, working at home was, was great. You would save 45 minutes on a commute each way or 30 minutes or, you know, how long that commute was. And, you know, you start to just think about a little bit more of, of where your time is. And, you know, for me personally, it's, hey, I cannot manage my 15 to 20 positions the way I want to. I need to I need to take the time and pare that down and maybe make a shift into a more ETF focused portfolio. So I mean I actively put together a plan of of truly reviewing reviewing the companies that, that I was invested in, those that I had less conviction in, or you know, maybe I eliminated or even just pared down to a less, you know, not as big of a position. And then I actively tracked by month when I tracked my net worth, what my what my total allocation was just between, you know, a total stock market ETF and individual stocks just to try to manage that risk portfolio a little bit. That makes a lot of sense. How did you go through that process? Like, how did you think about paring down or reducing the individual stocks, but then also, I guess, growing a portfolio? Did you grow a portfolio of more index slash ETF funds, mutual funds, I guess, more passive investing? Did you take, you know, just throw easy numbers. Did you take this lump sum of money and then transfer that to this lump sum of money in 
different kinds of investments. Is is that kind of what you did? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. You know, what became abundantly clear as I started going through this is, hey, Andy, you weren't paying as close attention as you thought you were. And I found I found some crap in my positions. I mean, there's stuff that I shouldn't have owned for probably six to 12 months that I owned. And it's because it's like, yep, you weren't paying enough attention. Your thesis was proven out and it was true. So, you know, as I would find that, I would move some of those funds into just, you know, an SPY or an ETF that I've, I've written quite a bit about on the Investing for Beginners blog is MTUM. Hold, you know, it's a momentum ETF, but it holds a lot of those very same core earnings or core companies of the S&P 500. And then at that point too, you know, it was a conscious effort of, I am not buying any new individual companies unless I can take on the workload. And I really thought about it from a perspective of, okay, do I have, you know, four to six hours to kind of allocate on my initial thesis? And then, and that's for a very, very small position. And then do I want to, if I want to add, am I willing to continue to spend, you know, an hour a month or a few hours a quarter kind of looking into understanding how things are going? Do I like the trends? And if I'm not, that's fine. I mean, Earning eight eight percent just investing in SPY, you know, after inflation, that's I mean, you can certainly get rich. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, you can for sure. It's a heck of a lot better than a savings account for sure. Yep, that's exactly it. You know, a phrase that I've really started to use quite a bit frequently is "Don't let perfect be the enemy of good." Mm -hmm. And just because life isn't one hundred percent optimized, and if you think you can outperform the market, that's fine. But you know, everything's a balance in life too, and you got to make sure you can actually actually manage what what your workload is. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that gets lost in a lot of this is what is the time cost slash opportunity cost of this versus this? So is it more important to you to spend time with your family or is it more important to you to spend that time allocated to learning about company B and how much are you willing to give up to do this versus this? And it's not, and time is nothing, none of us can get it back. So the last second that we just spent talking about this is gone forever and we'll never get it back unless we listen to the recording. And even then we can't get it back. And so it's a precious resource that I think a lot of us don't really think about, you know, is my time more better spent studying this company or is it spending half an hour on Instagram? There's something to both, but I think understanding what's important to you and doing what's best for you and for your family. And, you know, I could argue that keeping your portfolio of single, you know, individual stocks is probably, was probably, is probably not at that time, the best thing for your family in the long run, because the whole point of investing is to, you know, to build your wealth. And if you have companies in your portfolio that are crap because we can't spend time focusing on them, then you're better served not having those investments to begin with. Yeah, it's a, you know, it's a great framework to really think through what is your time truly worth. Mm-hmm. And that can be your opportunity cost of, like you said, spending time with your family. And it can also just be, you know, I mean, it can truly be like an actual monetary ROI. You know, I, I don't remember what it was, but I was listening to a podcast years ago where they talked about having someone come mow their yard, took them an hour, they would pay this person $50 an hour. But then they could go make 75 to 100 just by investing in their business and by spending that time in a better use. And I always have the mindset of optimize, optimize, optimize. I'm never going to pay someone to mow my yard. I can do that myself. 
mm-hmm. are also on the phone on my phone Sunday mornings before I grocery shop and clip coupons. And I'll spend 15 minutes doing that to save, you know, two bucks. You know, it's like it's, you know, sometimes you reach the seasons of life where you take a step back and you think about where's my time best allocated to help me be the most effective and, and truthfully do what we want to do with our lives I mean, right. for, you know, for the foreseeable future. Yep. I, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that I took away from our conversation about that, this, the idea that you, you kind of changed how you were investing was, I think, you know, Andrew and I are obviously stock pickers and that's what we like to do and we enjoy it. And it's a passion for us. And we think it's a, a great way to build your wealth, but there are so many different ways to build your wealth in the markets without having to be the next Warren Buffett. And I think for whatever reason that there seems to be like this, I don't know, stigma or whatever. And maybe it's just among stock picking geeks that if you're investing in ETFs, that you're not a real investor. And I think that's crap. And I think it's just as hard to find great ETFs as it is to find great individual stocks because there's so many choices. And so I guess one of the things that I, when I think about ETF investing or index investing is how do you find the ones that are going to work for you? Like, how would you give somebody like a step-by-step process to find this ETF or index fund to help get people started or building a portfolio of those kinds of ideas? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. You know, the process, I think, to find ETFs is a little, doesn't have as much due diligence as what I'll do when I'm, you know, looking at purchasing an individual stock. And that's probably why I've moved my strategy over to that. One website that I've absolutely fallen in love with over the years is ETF.com. They just have, it really is. I mean, they have fantastic analysis, all the key metrics you'd want to see. It'll show all, I mean, every holding, not just the top 10 that you might find on some websites, but every holding and the percentage within that ETF. I mean, it, it tells you exactly what the specific goal is of that ETF. And they write, I mean, pretty regularly will write articles just talking about new ETFs or just increasing exposure. I mean, I've fallen in love with that website because I think it's really helped me try to narrow in on finding exactly what ETFs I, mm-hmm. I want to invest in. So I guess what would be two or three metrics slash things maybe people should look for if they're this idea of index investing appeals to them, but they don't know where to start. Like what would be a couple things that they should start off looking for to help them filter through good versus maybe not so good. So if I'm going to, you know, look for, you know, a specific ETF. So what I've talked about in the past, if I want to find a gold miner ETF or something focused around gold, there's a lot of different options out there. I mean, there's some that physically track the price of gold, uh, there's some that'll track the gold miners. Uh, there's some that'll track multiple companies that all play into the gold industry. So it's really trying to, I think when you go in, you need to have an idea of, of what ETF you're looking for, what the goal is. I mean, before you even get to the website, what am I specifically looking for when I'm trying to find this ETF? What's the target outcome? At that point, what I like to do is I like to look at, I'll look at past returns are always indicative for me. I think one of the largest, most important pieces are what's the expense ratio of that ETF. If the expense ratio, which is what we're paying to the company that's running the ETF, if it's anything over half a percent, I'm out. I mean, just just right off the bat, you can go invest in a Vanguard ETF for 0.03%. Uh, 
there's a lot of fidelity ETFs that are absolutely zero commission whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So for me to pay someone half a percent to get some different exposure, or maybe do something a little bit different than I can get somewhere else. To me, I just, I don't reap those rewards. Mm-hmm. Another thing I look for is just kind of credible sources or like a credible brand name behind it. You know, mm-hmm. is it an iShares or is it a spider ETF? Just look for some of those brand names that help me bring me some recognition. When I'm buying an ETF, it's because I want to be hands off. I don't want to, if I'm losing sleep over an ETF, I definitely messed up more than that. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. so those are the things I'm looking at. You know, who are in the in the top holdings? Are there companies I've heard of? Is it a bunch of things I've, you know, brands that I've I've zero exposure to? If so, then I need to step back. I think and probably learn a little bit more about the industry before I actually am ready to put my money into that into that ETF. Yeah, that's those are all great points. And I think people don't realize what kind of breadth and depth of ETFs are out there. If you want to invest in literally almost everything, like if you're into pickles and you want to find an ETF that tracks the best pickle companies in the world, I'm sure there's something out there like that. I'm not, I don't know for sure there is. I'm just being facetious, but there is airlines, you know, semiconductors, the cloud, payment companies, gold miners, just about everything. And that's just in the U.S. So you can step outside of the U.S. and there's all kinds of international flavored ETFs as well. And there's bond funds and it just can go on and on and on. I guess besides expense ratios, what else would be a non-starter for you? Like, I know that there are some leveraged ETFs out there. We have talked in the past about the evils of those. And maybe you could kind of touch on that a little bit. Yeah, leverage ETFs are, they're a scary one. So, I mean, there's some some ETFs, you know, uh, like TQQQ, that's the triple leverage NASDAQ 100. So that's one that was a super hot button during COVID when all the tech stocks were flying. I mean, yeah. if you didn't invest in it, you're an idiot, right? Right. But you see the drop off, it's drastic. <laughs> now, we, I mean, we always talk about, hey, if, you know, if a stock drops 50%, for it to get back to where it was, it has to double now. So you think about some of that math, it's the same thing with these leverage ETFs. They're resetting daily. So the ups are not as high and the lows are lower. So you really have to, I mean, you have to be very careful. If you're reading the, I mean, I was stunned because at first when I was reading these and investigating them, just trying to understand why there was so much hype. A lot of a lot of the uh, brokerages, will actually put out, these are not to be used as a long-term investment. I mean, it explicitly says that. It's a short-term thing. I mean, it's a day trader's way to try to leverage up. It's very, very high risk. That, yeah. I mean, to me, that is an immediate non-starter as well. Yeah, yeah I would agree. So I guess maybe we could kind of wrap this up by talking about what do you think are the advantages of maybe an ETF versus an index fund, or are there any? Are they interchangeable? What's kind of the difference and how could people utilize those in the same kind of idea? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of times people will will use the two words uh, interchangeably for sure. Um, so, you know, an index fund, ETFs or index funds are ETFs. So index funds will typically be used in the context of they're out there to track an index. So the S&P 500, the NASDAQ, the Dow, that's typically the goal. It's to replicate the returns of of what an index is. Now, there will be index ETFs, which will do the same thing. But then you also have much more tailored uh, niche ETFs. So Dave, like you mentioned, 
the airlines. So there's one that's Jets, J-E-T-S, that will have all of your major airline players within that ETF. You know, I will sometimes use those if I want to learn more about an industry, take a little nibble off of an ETF uh, to help get some skin in the game. And I, I find that helps me learn better Mm -hmm. uh, to have just more natural interest. So that's when I'll start to really use, you know, the ETFs versus just a typical SPY or QQQ type index fund. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I think one thing that I guess the last thing I'd like to kind of maybe chat a little bit about is I think some people think that you have to do one or the other. And I don't think that people maybe think that you can have a basket of ETFs or indexes that you invest in alongside having exposure to individual stocks. So you can mix and match however you want. I, I've read about investors that they may put 50% of their investments in like an SPY type index fund. And that's their base to make sure that they do okay. And then they'll spend 50% of their money on more fun things or more speculative things and to keep their interest in the stock market. So I think, you know, so you said you still have some individual stocks as well as the more passive part of your portfolio. How do you, I guess, how do you manage that? How do you plan to manage that going forward? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a really interesting question. I mean, you'll often hear about the debate where it feels like people are exclusive, uh, either your ETFs, mutual funds, index funds, or you're all in on stock picking. You can make it great money either way, mm-hmm. and you can be very, very successful either way. Mm-hmm. I don't think there is a right or wrong. The reason we hear so many recommendations to hold 15, 20 stocks is to be diversified. Having a portion of your investments in index funds is great diversification. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Another thing we always talk about is, hey, stick to what you know. I mean, Really stay in your lane. If you work, you know, I used to work in the oil industry. I knew oil oil companies pretty well. If those are the companies I want to invest in, you can only invest in those companies and you can diversify another 90, 95% out into a globally diversified index fund that'll protect you and allow you to also stick what you know and, and potentially outperform. I think it's really important to know what your strengths are and to create these barriers basically to protect yourself. So I know you talked about speculative stocks. I'm a person that has buckets for everything. So my spending accounts, I have buckets. <laughs> my investment accounts, I have buckets, buckets. And I have a speculative bucket. And I found that if I spend, allow 5% of my portfolio to be in speculative stocks, it keeps me safe with my 95%. Mm-hmm. So it's all about finding ways to de-risk Give yourself an opportunity to still make really solid gains. I mean, that's why we're investing in the first place. This isn't an incomeless hobby for us, hopefully. No. So, you know, it's, I mean, we're all in this for a reason, but it's, it's de risking and, and just making sure that we have a specific purpose with what each stock is that we're purchasing or what each ETF that we're purchasing is. Yeah, that's perfect. That's awesome. All right. Well, with that, I think that's a great place to end. So, with that, I'm going to go ahead and wrap up our conversation. Andy. Thank you very much for for joining me today. This was a lot of fun and I learned a lot. It was fun talking to you about HSAs and also the index slash ETF fund idea so that I learned a bunch of stuff from you today. I was actually taking notes. So thank you for sharing your knowledge with me and with our audience. We really appreciate that. And again, everyone, Andrew will be back next week. So without any further ado, I will go ahead and sign us off. You guys go out there and invest with a margin of safety, emphasis on the safety. 
Have a great week and we'll talk to you all next week. We hope you enjoyed this content. Seven Steps to Understanding the Stock Market shows you precisely how to break down the numbers in an engaging and readable way with real-life examples. Get access today at stockmarketpdf.com. Until next time, have a prosperous day. The information contained is for general information and educational purposes only. It is not intended for a substitute for legal, commercial, and or financial advice from a licensed professional. Review our full disclaimer at einvestingforbeginners.com.